0: Art can mean different things to different people. These are just our opinions. Ben and Tristan know that our opinions may differ from yours and encourage that difference. Also spoilers. Welcome to the Journey to the Center of Cinema, where we try to get to the center of movies and TV. I'm Tristan. I'm Ben. And we are just starting this up. So before we start digging into specific movies, we thought we'd let you guys know where we stand with movies by talking about our top five favorite movies.
1: So we're going to dive right in and try to get to the center of, of what makes us us and what we appreciate about the art of cinema. Now our lists are in no particular order and we had a lot of movies to pick from but we tried to winnow it down to our top five respectively. We do not have any that are the same which is surprising because we share many similar favorite movies and interests so Tristan, why don't you go ahead and pick one from your list and we can can talk about it.
0: Sure. I'll talk about uh, Logan. So Logan came out in 2017. It is directed by James Mangold and acts as the end to a sort of trilogy of movies about Wolverine. What I really like about this, besides finally giving us a Wolverine movie that feels like reading a comic book starring Wolverine, it's more of like almost a Western and character study about Logan and the effects of his violent past than it is about any superheroics. The performances are fantastic across the board. Hugh Jackman as Wolverine is the best he's ever been. Same with Patrick Stewart. And it also introduced the world to Daphne Keene as Laura, who gave probably one of the best child star performances in recent memory.
1: Well, I think we have to thank uh, Ryan Reynolds and Deadpool for getting this movie made, giving it that R rating that, you know, like you said, it made it seem like an actual Wolverine comic book because we could see some of the, what we couldn't see in the older X-Men movies or the first two Wolverine-centric movies was him using his claws and the, the blood and the, the gore from that, but also the, the human side of that, of showing that every time that the claws come out, it hurts. And him getting older, having to, you know, the claws don't come out like they used to and being able to see the visual of that, that pain and that blood. Yeah. I think something we've talked about before with this movie too is the noir cut, um, which for anyone that doesn't know, they released a fully black and white version in theaters, but now it's standard on the Blu-ray as well that really shows how much attention James Mangold pays to the different lighting in the movie because you take the color away and the movie is still stunning. It, and it even works better in some instances to you know strip it away and really focus on the performances and the characters instead of the glitz and glamour that we get in in movies nowadays.
0: Yeah, I would I would say the noir cut is actually just the best viewing experience you can have for it, and it's one of the few times we've ever got of an action hero or character having a satisfying ending to their story. There's I can't think of any others off the top of my head. Maybe Iron Man.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say I think we got some of that closure in end game with both iron man and to a different degree cap although speculation is now that he will either one of those could be returning in the near future so but i mean there's also speculation that hugh jackman could reprise his role as wolverine in the mcu so
0: i hope not not (laughs) that i don't love love him in the role he was probably the best person for it i will just say if Disney is listening, because I'm sure they are. Cast Daphne Keene as Wolverine. Just do it. We need
1: some more Laura. Yeah, I think of all the, the, you know, children in this movie, she's definitely the standout. Not only because she has the most screen time, but you really get a sense of her character, even when she's interacting with the other group, of who Laura is compared to all of the other mutant children that are trying to get to the promised land. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And she does most of that without saying a word for two-thirds of the movie.
1: And then when she finally does talk, there's no subtitles and it's in Spanish.
0: And then she punches Hugh Jackman in the face. For real. You can tell. <laughs> but yeah, Logan is, just to wrap it up, a fantastic movie. And a coworker of mine once said, it has everything that he loved about movies in it. And you know, that's how I feel.
1: All right, let's transition to one of mine. We'll start here. Pan's Labyrinth directed by Guillermo del Toro. It's a movie that, and before we got on here, Tris and I were kind of talking about it, I think a lot of people mislabel because it's known for very specific scenes that lend themselves more to the creature design that Guillermo del Toro is known for, which looks to be more horror than what it is. But it's this beautiful film that is both fantasy and gritty realism set against the Spanish Civil War. And it's one of Guillermo del Toro's movies that is completely in Spanish, which I think really helps it, especially his mastery of the dialogue. And, you know, he said himself that this is one of his most personal films. And I think you get that emotion behind the director in there. You know, you you follow Ophelia, this young girl who... Is obsessed with fairy tales and as she's leaving her hometown to move in as her mother is marrying a general that's in the spanish civil war there's this escapism through these fairy tales and then it becomes part of her life and there's there's those blurred lines throughout the whole movie of what is real and what isn't is it all just the fantasy of a child or is what we see happening throughout the movie of her meeting the faun who starts this fantastical quest and there's fairies and she has to re- retrieve stones from the mouth of a giant toad that's in this tree. And you're always wondering, is this just her imagination or is what we see actually happening? And I think the ending of the movie really plays itself well to that. I, we've given a spoiler warning. So I'm just going to say that you get to the point where, Ophelia is dying and Tristan, I know you're going to want to comment on this part. Um, But he did kill a child. Um, But you see her after, you know, as she's dying, go back to the underworld to be with her father, who is supposedly the king of the underworld and she's a princess. And you don't know if this is just, if this is actually happening as she's dying, or if this is part of the imagination that she's built up and it's left ambiguous on purpose and i think it's just all of the different symbolism and you know this fantastical world versus the real world and our monsters fairy tales or the real monsters the human beings around us i love it yeah
0: i think it plays to del toro's strengths really well which has always been stunning visuals and creature direction but where his english films like Pacific Rim and um, Crimson Peak. What was that other one? Crimson Peak, Fall Flat is with the characters. And as much as fun as Pacific Rim is, I couldn't tell you a single thing about the characters (laughs) off the top of my head. But does the way he weaves together this this historical side of the Spanish Civil War and how that affected the country of Spain with this mystical story and kept it just vague enough so you don't know what is true and what is fantasy really brings out the human side of everything that's happening and puts it against you know a Wood fawn and the the man with the hands with eyes which is absolutely terrifying but makes the story that much more personal
1: yeah and i think you know I think both of us have touched a lot on Ophelia's side of the story too, but there's two sides to the movie because there's also the Spanish Civil War and the, the insurgents and Mercedes who's with the captain and is one of his trusted advisors, but her brother is fighting on the other side of the war in the jungles and taking out the supplies. And it's very interesting to see the two sides play out in her and where her allegiances lie so yeah great movie about the spanish civil war great movie that blends those ideas of fantasy and reality yeah
0: Yeah, that's great
1: it's great tristan Uh, and ben
0: performances are really good (laughs) um another really fantastic child actor performance from this movie there's there's our consistency across movies (laughs) there it is okay we'll hop over back to my list go to we'll talk about jurassic park for a second let's do it everybody knows what jurassic park is directed by steven spielberg at the height of his power i mean i guess he's still at the height of his power honestly it's steven spielberg it's about theme park with clone dinosaurs and then obviously stuff goes wrong because it's a theme park with clone dinosaurs one of the best Summer blockbusters ever made. One of the first movies I ever watched, where I wanted to know how they did it. The effects hold up. We saw it recently together in a drive-in, and it's still a great theater experience. John Williams working some of his best musical magic, and of course, the man, the myth, the legend, Jeff Goldblum, as Dr. Ian Malcolm.
1: I think that's really all that we need to say. If we can just, just viewers, imagine the GIF of. Jeff Goldblum shirtless breathing if you want to have the little Alan Grant on there as well go for it go for it but that encapsulates really the essence of of Jurassic Park in my mind at least
0: not really a whole lot you have to say about it other than a fantastic film and it's got Jeff Goldblum playing the character he will play for the rest of his
1: life himself it's true. I will say, if we want to get into some of the details of the movie, which I think we should, since we're a movie podcast, um, I think one of the things that Jurassic Park does so well against other action movies or even other movies in the Jurassic Park franchise is that it understands how to foreshadow. Yeah. It doesn't give stuff away right off the bat. It's, it's built on the tension of you know what's coming, but you haven't seen it yet. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the biggest instance with this in terms of size really is the T-Rex is, you know, that it's there, but until the cars break down until the, you know, you start getting the water droplet moving in the cup, in the, in the cars, it's really, the T-Rex is never fully revealed until it's fully revealed. It's pieced out and you know, it's coming. And I think, you know, the biggest one in terms of this, the... The buildup is the Velociraptors, which are the climax of the movie. You get it from the very beginning with Grant and Ellie with the claw. And even before, I guess, the opening scene yeah, of the movie, the opening movie scene with, is with the, uh, with the hunter. The and, handlers that yeah. yeah, that one of them gets dragged in. But, and then you get the claw from Dr. Grant when they're in the desert and they're approached to go to the park. But all throughout the movie, you know, there's little instances of building to the Raptors until you finally get to the the kitchen scene with the kids, and then or I guess, man, maybe we need to fix this in post.
0: No, I guess I, the Raptors
1: think- would first be when they kill Samuel L. Jackson, right? No, that that kind of happens simultaneously. Oh, okay, great. Yeah. So, so yeah, when, so <laughs> so yeah, the kitchen scene with the two kids, and then around the same time in the film with Samuel L. Jackson's character when they're going to the communications lines and doing the hard reset.
0: It also understands when to show you the monster and when not to. Nothing ever overstays its welcome. Because you have the T-Rex with the cars, but you only see the full T-Rex a couple of times because you have the great, like, When it lowers its head and Tim has the flashlight and you get the pupil dilating outside the window and most of that is done with just the head. You don't see the full T-Rex except for a couple of times.
1: Right. Well, and I think Steven Spielberg understands too the props and what they were using to make these dinosaurs come alive. If you show it too much, it doesn't look real anymore. You know, it's kind of that uncanny valley type of ideation and any of the best monster movies from that time or before you know you look at alien the xenomorph in the first alien is barely in it yeah jaws jaws the shark you don't see it a whole lot and it's it's knowing what to use and when to use it instead of just which i think modern films of this genre don't understand that because they're going for the spectacle of you know you need to see the xenomorph for two hours in this two and a half hour movie yep or you know jurassic world there's going to be a dinosaur on screen at all times it's in the contract and
0: chris pratt's going to ride a motorcycle with those dinosaurs and we thank him for it oh he did he it was great it was a great scene but it's not jurassic
1: park And I think that's, that's the difference. Yeah. I mean, for me, Jurassic Park, 10 out of 10 gold blooms, but. Yeah.
0: 10 out of 10 gold blooms. And that's how we will in the future measure the quality of films is how much gold bloom.
1: As long as Jeff Goldblum is in it. Yeah. And there's always going to be 10 out of 10 gold blooms. (laughs) All right. We'll hop over back to my list. Now this one is, it's a really classic story. I think everybody, you've heard this story so many times in your life is, child raised in Nazi Germany, whose imaginary friend is Adolf Hitler. And of course, I'm talking about Jojo Rabbit, Taika Waititi's best movie and probably his best role as well. I think there's so much to love about this movie, and it's one of the funniest movies that I've ever seen. But it also perfectly balances that humor with at the drop of a hat, it will make you cry because of the seriousness of the situation and the time period it is in Nazi Germany and just because there's levity brought to the movie it doesn't ignore the stakes in the world around it and i think again we've given the spoiler warning the the shoes when you've got this and it's going to get me just thinking about it but I never forget it you've got making me cry about shoes you've got jojo you know his child his sense of childlike wonderment, and he's running through the town square and he's following this butterfly and the sound the score in this moment is just so beautiful, and you've got this uplifting you know you're you're thinking all right, finally everything's working out for him, and then the butterfly lands on this shoe, and it's recognizable as his mother's shoe who was being hanged for conspiring against the Nazis. And I think that moment in and of itself is heartbreaking. But then Taika takes it one step further. And throughout the movie, it's been shown that Jojo can't tie his shoes. And he tries to tie his mother's shoe because it's untied. And he just, he's not able to do it. And it's, it's so sad. But I think the biggest parts about it is, of course, you know, looking at the situation with those real stakes behind it and also showing that children that grow up believing a certain ideology and how in this time, like that was ingrained in people. It wasn't something that you had so much of a choice. It's like you, you're a child or you're in Nazi Germany or other Nazi controlled areas. And you're going to believe this. Like, that's what everyone tells you. And I liked the exploration of that and then also the ability for Jojo to break out of that and understand his own place in the world and it's it's so beautiful and I'm just sitting here like tearing up already because of those dang shoes. It really puts in front of people the
0: idea of if there are people who believe a poisonous ideology if it was because they were raised in it they can be helped and I think that is an important thing to remember when to avoid painting people with a broad brush and it is a credit to taika as a writer and a director that he was able to put that forward in a movie that is heartbreaking and dramatic but also hilarious and fun and not preachy when you get down to it
1: and i think i'm i'm gonna give some special shout outs to the cast of this one just because The cast is amazing. Of course, you have Taika Waititi playing JoJo's imaginary version of Adolf Hitler, but you have Scarlett Johansson in what is probably her best ever role, and I'm including Mm -hmm. Marriage Story in this, um, as Rosie, JoJo's mother. Um, There's a great scene in the middle where she portrays both his mother and his father um, because he's not in the picture currently during the movie. You have Roman Griffin Davis, who plays JoJo, and he does a phenomenal job. In his first major film role. His first major film role, correct. And then you have some of the funniest moments come from Archie Yates, who plays Yorkie, his best friend, who demonstrates the absurdity of the Hitler Youth Program of giving a nine-year-old a rocket launcher and he blows up a storefront. Sam Rockwell plays Captain K. And there's also Alfie Allen as Freddie Finkel, who is his second in command. And both of the, there's the moment where the Gestapo come into JoJo's house and they have set the record for how many times they can say Heil Hitler in a certain amount of time in the movie. It's meaningless now.
0: It means with, nothing.
1: With Stephen Merchant's Gestapo agent. So, I mean... There's so many good performances. And they always say that that line between tragedy and comedy is so close together. And I think this movie really knows how to balance both of those aspects. Also, there's just a lot of white people dancing. mm
0: -hmm. I'd also uh, like to shout out, I think her name is Thomason McKenzie. It is. Who plays um, Elsa, the person who helps Jojo overcome his brainwashing and is both a very tragic character and also very funny at the same time hollywood give these kids more roles
1: like all of them okay all right tristan what do you got for me
0: well yeah we'll talk about um here how about something that i don't think has any fantastic child actors in it <laughs> we're going to talk about fellowship of the ring now when i had to pick my top five movies for this picking one of the lord of the rings movies to talk about uh by itself was probably the hardest part because they are all nearly perfect and i could talk about them forever but fellowship is such an important movie to me as somebody who loves cinema that i decided to go with it specifically the extended cut. I've never actually seen the theatrical cut of Fellowship of the Ring. (laughs) Adapting Tolkien's story to film was always going to be a challenge uh, because there's just so much there and the story is so epic and the characters are so deep. But Peter Jackson managed to not only remove only the tiniest bit and reshape it into something you could put on film but he managed to find perhaps the best cast in the history of filmmaking. Yeah. Elijah Wood, star making role as Frodo. Sean Astin in a role that should have won him an Oscar three different times, but didn't. Ian McKellen, excuse me, Sir Ian McKellen. Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn. Andy Serkis doing the role that would force him to wear skin-tight green suits and tennis balls for the rest of his career. It... The fact that Fellowship and The Lord of the Rings as a whole worked is impressive, but Fellowship provides such a good backstory to the world of Middle-earth and then gives you perhaps the only glimpse of what life is like normally and happy
1: before everything is destroyed. I think what's really important about Fellowship too is, it is it's more of a slow build. It's not like the Two Towers and Return of the King that are built around these big set battles that kind of frame the story. It's establishing the characters and then starting to develop them and show this process, this beginning of the journey. And it doesn't really have all of that, the spectacle as the other one, except for you've got Rivendell and the elves, which is, you know, a beautiful set piece. And you have the Shire that's fleshed out, but you know, it doesn't have the the huge battles that you're used to in the other movies, and I think what's really telling is most people. I think, the, well, they'll revisit this one the most, but I think a good majority of people will also say that this one is their favorite. I think, yeah, most people will say it's between this and Return of the King, and I think. You know, we're just going to talk about all of them, but I think Two Towers doesn't get enough credit. But I think it's really telling that the beginning of the story that doesn't have as much of the action or the memorable scenes that people always talk about, like Helm's Deep, Mm -hmm. it still has so much affinity for it.
0: Yeah, there's one big battle, and I think that's the very beginning where you... Witness the fall of Sauron, and then even the fight scenes in this one are more contained. You have when Frodo is stabbed on Weathertop; mm-hmm. uh, it's just the hobbits and the wraiths And then in the Mines of Moria, there's the fight in the tomb, but it's not this big sweeping right spectacle. It's very confined, and then you have the scene with the Balrog on the bridge, but that's more of a character beat because it provides motivation for the rest of the heroes. And all of the rest of the films are very epic and there's sweeping battles and the Battle of Pelennor Fields and Return of the King lasts like an hour and a half.
1: And it's great and we love it. Love it.
0: Legolas takes down an entire giant Oliphant by himself and it's over the top and it's fantastic and I love every second of it, but fellowship But it still just
1: counts as one.
0: And it, yeah, it specifically only counts as one. But Fellowship provides far more character moments that give you a grounding to make everything that happens in the other two films possible. And I think it's one of the few franchise films where the first one is most people's favorite. And I love it to death. There's, there's far too little Andy Circus in it, but I love it to death.
1: You know, a little Andy Circus to tease us, to foreshadow the rest of the Andy Circus. Right. Oh,
0: and we would be remiss to not mention Howard Shore providing one of the all-time best film scores.
1: If you're ever doing work from home or even at the office and just really need a, a surge of productivity, I would definitely put on the soundtrack to this film
0: except for breaking of the fellowship because he might just cry. (laughs) I cry every time with Barmier's death, every single time.
1: Even though we all could have seen it coming because it was Sean Bean. Yeah, obviously.
0: You think Ned Stark's death death is tragic? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, moving on. All
1: right. So similarly to Lord of the Rings, I've also picked a a massive war-type film that focuses on knights and a quest, but mine lends itself to more of the comedic beats, and of course it's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And I'm not sure what I can say about this movie that someone hasn't already said. I could quote large swaths of this film with no problem, and I bet if I turned it on right now I could most likely quote the entire movie it's it's so iconic for specific scenes that everybody knows and loves you've got the black knight the knights that say me i mean there's the taunting frenchman your mother was a hamster and your father smelled the elderberries i could
0: also quote probably this whole movie it's just (laughs) and they're good
1: yeah i think The Monty Python troupe at this point just knew each other so well and knew what was funny and what they could get away with by being so absurd. But it works. And I think, you know, the ending is one of those things that the first couple times that I saw this movie, I was just always, I, I was always still surprised when it ended because it's so abrupt. And it was really because they just didn't want to put so much they ran out of money their budget wasn't big enough that they were like we really can't film this giant battle scene that we've been building up to and it works so much better that way because if they would have had a giant battle scene then it would have i think cut into some of the the funny aspects and made it just like oh well this is just kind of another take on the king arthur lore but instead they all get arrested and you're not sure if this is happening or if it's just them people taking a dramatic, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like they arrested a bunch of LARPers. I think everyone has a favorite moment in this movie or a collection of moments. And it just has that comfort and rewatchability and quotability to it that I love. And I revisit this movie multiple times a year. I just love it so much.
0: It's hard to critique comedy.
1: I think it's
0: probably out of any genre. Comedy is the hardest to critique, but this is pretty much untouchable when it comes to movies. I can't think of a problem I have with it. I can tell you off the top of my head every single joke and bit that I like. I used to know the entire prayer for the holy hand grenade by heart. I don't think I do it anymore. I'd have to revisit it again, but nope, this Five is, is way out and they just feast off the land and the fruit bats and the breakfast cereals and the orangutangs. You made it through your teenage years and you didn't watch this. You missed out.
1: And if you have somehow gotten to this point in the episode and you haven't seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, go watch it.
0: Yeah, it doesn't matter what we have to say next. Honestly, this movie's been out for almost 50 years or so. (laughs) Go watch it. Yeah. We can hop back over to me. Um, We're going to talk about a movie that's only two years old, we're going to talk about Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Now, everyone who knows me knows that I am a massive fan of Spider-Man. I've seen every single movie. I had to go to the library when I was growing up and get those big black-white collections of the classic Spider-Man comics, and I read all the way up to... When, spoiler alert, for 60s and 70s Spider-Man comics, Gwen dies. But when I was in high school, I also uh, was lucky enough to be able to read Ultimate Spider-Man as Miles was being published for the first time. And when Spider-Man was introduced into the MCU and they used Peter again, I was a little upset because I wanted... Miles to be the Spider-Man. And then I heard they were making an animated Spider-Man with Miles at the center and was very skeptical. And then when I saw this movie, I was blown away by every aspect of it. The animation is unlike any other movie out there at all. They made Miles move at different frame rates than the other heroes. The style looks exactly like comic books, but only for specific people. All the other characters, all the other spider people from the different universes are animated differently. They took a story about a portal opening up and bringing five or six other spider people into Miles' home universe, not only be accessible, but work In just about two hours, we became attached to all of the characters and it made sense. The soundtrack is one of the best soundtracks in a long time. The acting across the board is good. Special mention to Shamik Moore as Miles and Jake Johnson as a burnt out, slightly overweight Peter Parker. And of course... Nicolas Cage as Spider-Man Noir playing himself. I saw this movie more times in theaters than any other. I love it. It's the perfect Spider-Man movie. And it has Spider-Ham in it.
1: So Yeah, I think, I think there are just specific moments when you watch this that you you understand that the creators are passionate about this and understand comics. And the, I think the first one is towards the very beginning you have the Comic Code Authority. like icon that pops up and you just i know when i watched it in the theater everybody just started laughing because they understood the historical context behind that in comics which for people who are nerdy about this type of stuff which tristan and i most certainly are having that small detail put in focus you're just like oh they get it they understand comic books they
0: don't even follow the comics code authority it's broken the the rules are broken
1: (laughs) but you've got so you've got that aspect of it and then i think just the creation of the film if you pause it at any time in the movie you've got a perfect like any screen capture that you can take could be a panel in a comic book and the way they edited it was intentional for that reason where the action would never get too bogged down so that you couldn't follow it visually. Which a lot of things with like real people or other animation, they bend those rules, but they go, No, if this was a comic book, you would be you would need to be able to follow frame by frame in the story. So we're gonna do that same thing where the action lines up so that you've got these clear eye lines and the the way the action moves, it would be moving into the page like in a comic book. And it's wonderful, um, and I loved the way that they the framing device of setting up all the different Spider-Man characters because then you got that sense of backstory and establishment without having to do, you know, because they understood that most people know the lore of Peter Parker by this point, so they could just breeze through that, and then some of the other characters didn't need as much introduction because they were side characters or like Spider Ham, he's a pig, but he's also sp- Spider-Man, you know, you don't need this whole story for it. So you just get a quick comic book gag that opens and shows it. And yeah, I think of any superhero movie that I've ever seen, and I've seen most of them that have ever been released. (laughs) This one, you can just tell that the creators aren't just passionate about the characters, but they're passionate about the medium. And they know how they can use animation to, you know, honor that the history behind these characters.
0: There is a level of love for the character of Spider-Man that is portrayed in this movie that I don't think any adaptation, except maybe the Lord of the Rings show that show is shown here. Like they, they have a gag involving Peter dancing down the street, like he did in Spider-Man three, a scene that is pretty much universally hated and made fun of, but they put it in there. You see, at one point, different costumes that Peter has worn, and it's not just in the movies. There's deep cut costumes from every decade of the comic books, and they even managed to sneak in the PS4 costume, which is one of the better ones. And they gave Miles his best suit but it is unique to this Miles it's I could talk about this movie for hours honestly this there are specific point maybe we will yeah at some point we might there are scenes in here that you could pause and make like art prints out of I think off the top of my head when Miles is jumps off the building and is falling into the city but they invert it so it looks like he's rising in becoming a hero. There's so much attention to detail in this. It is, it won <laughs> Best Animated Picture at the Oscars for good reason, and I think will stand the test of time as what people need to shoot for, for animation.
1: And also, we I mean, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, the post credit scene features Miguel O'Hara, Spider-Man 2099, which is one of my favorite comic book characters of all time. I'm a very big 2099 guy. So having that inclusion potentially se- and it referenced the old Spider Man cartoon with that classic meme of the two Spider Man pointing at each other. Just another deep cut in the Spider Man lore. So potentially setting up a sequel with Miguel and miles together is I'm already like my ticket has been bought. Yeah, whenever he's movies played by are open,
0: Oscar Isaac. So I think if it does more than set it up, I think you're not going to hire him for no reason. And probably one of the most emotional Stanley cameos in any Marvel movie.
1: Yeah, because it was I believe it was the last one they filmed before his passing. It wasn't yeah, the last was, one that came out.
0: Yeah, I think it but also was released less than a month
1: after he passed away. Just thereabouts, yeah. Yeah. All right. yeah. Let's talk about The Prestige. Because this is a movie, this is one of the movies that I've had in my life that have been just a great movie watching experience. Um, Directed by Christopher Nolan, it is one of his most Nolan films um, with twists upon twist. I wrote in my notes that it's a twist apocalypse. It could even be a twistception, referencing another one of his twisty movies. Tristan's giving me the okay on that. Um, it's really, to me, it's about the performances and the story of two magicians that continually try to one-up each other. It's a story of one-upsmanship between Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman set in the, in the olden times when magicians were kind of a new thing, but also kind of on their way out because other forms of entertainment were more popular. And it's, it shows the the lengths that these two men will go to be better than one another. And it's also not just to one-up each other but there's a sense of revenge behind it because christian bale's character is partially responsible for the death of hugh Jackman's character's wife and you it takes that form and then both of them are they're both trying to be the best magician the revenge becomes a revenge on the revenge and it just keeps going um, there's also a great performance by Andy Circus, which we've talked about previously, and David Bowie is in it as Nikola Tesla, and a lot of people don't like his performance, but I think it's it's pretty good in my opinion. It's David Bowie, so like, yeah, so what he's gonna want. yeah exactly. <laughs> He's going to Bowie. But to me, it was just one of those movies, the first time I watched it, it really stuck with me on how beautiful it was shot and how there was a lot of attention paid to these characters. And looking back on it, I rewatched it not too long ago. The the twists are a little more choreographed than I remember. And I don't know if that's because I knew it was coming or if because at this stage in my life, I'm more versed in cinema and I could tell that, but even though I I knew what was coming and could see that coming, it still held up in my opinion of what the story was. And you're looking at all those small details that Christopher Nolan pays attention to that makes the the movie overall good.
0: Okay. We're going to, we're going to start with our first hot take of our entire podcast. Here Here we go. Let's do it. I'm not a fan of Mr. Nolan's work. I, I like Inception, and I think The Dark Knight is still pretty good. And Batman
1: Begins, right?
0: I have my issues with Batman Begins. It's, it's too long. It's just too long. Um, but for The Prestige, it is, I enjoyed watching it. I watched it for the first time very recently. Um, it was an enjoyable watch as I think most of Nolan's films are. But it suffers because Christopher Nolan feels the need to mess with time in his presentation of a movie. And there's, I think, six different timelines. Probably That's probably an exaggeration. But you have to tra- keep track of who's telling what part of the story. And it didn't need to be set up like that. It suffered because you start and then a character gets a diary, and then you go into the diary, and then that character gets a diary. It's diary Reception. Really, I think Inception was the movie he was born to make, because he seems to like to, he likes to do multiple. He does. But other than that, I have very few complaints about the film. It was an entertaining watch. Michael Caine is, as always... A pleasure. Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale are great in their roles and both very charismatic. The story is interesting. The effects are great. The twist is fun. A little telegraphed for my taste, but overall I think it's a good watch. Not my favorite, but it's very good
1: but it's one of my five, so. All right, Chris. We have to
0: disagree sometimes or we won't be interested.
1: All right, Tristan, give me your last one here.
0: My last one is the
1: original Lion King. Not the live action that's not live action remake? It hurts me that I have to specify
0: but the original Lion King from the Disney Renaissance, one of the most successful animated pictures of all time and still one of the most entertaining watches If you're in the mood for a Disney film, the songs are fun. I mentioned this movie and you probably have at least one of them running in your head right now.
1: I just can't wait to be King. It's
0: so good. The jokes still hold up. It has one of the best Disney song or Disney villain songs in the history of Disney movies. It still makes me cry to this day. Every time when Mufasa dies, It's how I knew I didn't like the new one when I did not get upset when Mufasa died. This is the first movie I ever watched. And over the years, even though I've seen hundreds of movies, this this one still makes me happy every single time.
1: It also really, it introduces kids to Hamlet. It does. That's really all I wanted to say about it.
0: It also has one of the best jokes ever, which is you got to put your behind in your past. Like... (laughs) That's true. Yeah, it's, the,
1: all of the voice acting in this movie is great. I think so many people are still surprised that Matthew Broderick voiced Simba. Yeah, but you you know you have James Earl Jones in there as Mufasa, and
0: there's Who- Whoopi Goldberg is one of the hyenas. There's mm-hmm. Jeremy Irons as Scar. Nathan Lane is Timon. Mr. Bean is Zazu. It's just. A great movie. It's, I still think, probably one of Disney's best, if not their best animated feature, and um, really should be held up as an example of why hand-drawn 2D animation was such an amazing art form. Yeah,
1: because it was shortly after this that 2D started being slowly replaced by CG animation.
0: And... As much as I love CG animation, the last movie I talked about is a CG animated film. I think we all lost something when 2D animation was phased out.
1: And you, you still we'll see good like... examples of it, but yeah. not as much as we should, I think. Mm-hmm.
0: Really, not much else to say about this. Like...
1: I feel like that's the hard thing about like objectively great movies is- Yeah. I mean, most people have seen The Lion King and know The Lion King. And you say it, and they're like, "Oh yeah, uh, duh." Duh. And then there's, you know, we can't really quibble with anything bad with it because there's there's very little bad in the Lion King.
0: There's some weird Nazi imagery
1: there for a second, but all right. Well, we can transition to my last, my number number five on my list. But again, these movies are in no particular order. Um, It's just the way we wrote them down from a director that I love because of his signature style of visuals and bring really being able to bring the material to life in new and interesting ways. And that director is Edgar Wright. And the movie is Scott Pilgrim versus the world. It is, it, it's hard for me to even talk about this movie too because I just think about how amazing it is. The movie starts with narration by Bill Hader, which... Bill Hader. Great voice, but also just great comedic timing. Great everything. Bill Hader, Mm -hmm. I know you're listening. We love you. Yeah. But it just starts with the narration and but it's also on the screen as text and you have all of these visual gags that the movie is going and the phone will ring, but it'll also like the ringing sounds will come from the phone. There's the moments with the music. The movie is based a lot about music as the band Sex Babom goes throughout. And there's the small visual gags with the music. And they're not all gags. I guess I shouldn't use that word. But the, the small visual moments that really bring something beyond a typical, oh, we're watching it. Cause you can it's more, I think, Edgar Wright really knows how to make you experience a movie. You're not just seeing what is in front of you, you're also seeing what you're hearing, and you're seeing what other people are seeing. And sometimes you're not seeing, and that's part of it. He's not just showing you these actors in a room acting. He brings all these other aspects to storytelling into it. I I love this movie. Great performances. Uh, great performance by Michael Sarah, which you don't hear that often. Mary Elizabeth Winstead is great as Ramona Always. Flowers. Um, and then The League of Seven Evil Exes has a bunch of great performances. Um, also, adjacent to that, Brie Larson can shows that she can really sing and act. Yeah. The song she we, sings we... in that is phenomenal.
0: Yeah, and you also you got Cap in
1: there, that's true. Chris Evans okay. playing Lucas Lee. You also have Superman in there, Brandon Routh. He deserved better. He did. You um, have Mae Whitman playing one of the evil exes because they are not ex boyfriends, they are exes. Mm-hmm. That is very made sure that we know that. Kieran Culkin playing Wallace, his roommate. Anna Kendrick plays his younger sister. Like the, the performance is alone, but I think it's really, I love most everything that Edgar Wright has put out and I think it's because of his use of visuals but I think this movie in particular it's a video game movie and it's one of the few video game movies that work because it is also respectful of video games it has those sight gags and you know I think one of when he defeats one of the evil exes he collects the coins and it's like 70 cents and it's not even enough for him to take the bus home and it's just some of those funny moments in it that shows this ridiculous world that they're living in and also the music it, the you know yeah. I think I've talked about it but Sex bob music the song Garbage Truck is kind of always in a loop in my mind Black Sheep that Brie Larson sang I love it. And Crash and the Boys, who do the song I'm So Sad, So Very, Very Sad, and then they follow it up with a song dedicated to Wallace of We Hate You, Please Die. I think
0: this is also if Into the Spider-Verse didn't exist, probably the most accurate page to screen adaptation of a comic book.
1: That's true. Oh it's yeah, it's based on a manga and The movie actually came out before the manga was finished. So Edgar Wright and Brian Lee O'Malley kind of played on each other to finish the last couple volumes and where the story was going to go. And the story is different between the movie and the manga as well. There are moments that are, you know, exact replica shots from the manga to the film and...
0: There's also some great one-liners. The one that always comes to mind for me is you punched the highlights out of her hair. But this is an incredibly fun movie. It somehow made Michael Cera sort of charismatic, which is weird. And um, I think demonstrates Edgar Wright's talent as a filmmaker more than even the Cornetto trilogy does. And of course, all love to those movies. They are all phenomenal movies. But I think Scott Pilgrim versus the world will go down as maybe his most Edgar Wright movie ever.
1: I mean, he's still got a lot of movie left in him, but I think this is also one of those movies that really demonstrates how a cult following can make a film stand the test of time because this Mm -hmm. was not when it came out no one saw it and critics are pretty neutral about it but over the years it's gained this following from people from word of mouth of just saying hey have you seen this movie it's really good and people discovering it on their own through streaming services and the like and it's really created this following 10 years now later of people who are like i love it and for I was late to this party and I saw it for the first time about two years ago and now it's in my top five of all time so I think that's yeah. and I think you know for both of us we have some movies in specifically my top five three of the movies in my top five I hadn't seen until two years ago
0: yeah I think well two of mine also came out recently but I think of all of our movies probably Scott Pilgrim is the one that I would assume most people haven't seen even including Pan's Labyrinth and uh, it, go see it go watch it it's
1: right great and I think that's something that to talk about someone's top five is one of those things that it's obviously art is subjective we've talked about that and mm-hmm. but it's one of those things if there's a movie that you've heard good things about and you've never seen it don't feel weird about seeking it out and having your own opinion and like challenging your own worldview and saying wait this movie has been in my top five forever but maybe it's not anymore because i found new art that i like more and that's okay or hey i watched this movie like you with lion king i watched this is the first movie i ever saw but i still love it
0: yeah all right you want to do some runners up just put them out there
1: yeah, let's do some honorable mentions. These are movies that we also really love. Not quite in our top five, but deserve some love. So yeah, if you yeah. want to just, should we just oh. rapid fire through them?
0: Yeah, uh, we'll start with kind of topical Hot Fuzz, one of the Cornetto Trilogy by Edgar Wright. Hilarious. Also brought Timothy Dalton back, so it's a good one.
1: All right, I, as a Marvel shill, I have to... I'm just going to give my top three Marvel movies um, from this list is my honorable mentions. Um, Avengers infinity war. Love it. Guardians of the galaxy, which I think is also on your runner up list. On my list. <laughs> and what is probably objectively the best Marvel movie, I think is the one that you don't really need to be a Marvel fan to enjoy, which is captain America, the winter soldier.
0: It's good. It's good. Jojo rabbit was on my runners up, but we already talked about that. Parasite. Let. Two years ago now, Best Picture, Ben and I talked about before we started recording. Neither of us can think of anything wrong with this movie.
1: That's great. Uh, it's another movie. one that we both have on our honorable mentions, Knives Out, that also came out about a year ago now. So
0: good. Searching, two years ago, actually pulled off the, takes place entirely on a computer. It's a little indie, but if you get a hold of it, watch it. It's
1: pretty good. I got to talk about The Devil's Backbone, which is another of Guillermo del Toro's Spanish language films set around the Spanish Civil War. Honorable mention for me. Let's see. Uh,
0: School of Rock for me. Still think probably Jack Black's best movie, and it's still funny.
1: Um, The Departed, one of the best mob-centric movies. Martin Scorsese really knew how to balance a bunch of characters and plot lines.
0: Booksmart. Coming of age movie from two years, last year?
1: Something like that? A few years ago now, I think.
0: Anyway, one of the best coming of age movies in recent history. And except for one sequence in it, hilarious
1: throughout. All right, my last one was so close to my top five. And someday it might just edge in, but Better Off Dead, starring John Cusack, one of the best 80s movies also just full of so many quotable lines and it's it's it is a movie because it has an overarching plot but it's really just a series of funny gags put together on film carried out by john cusack and curtis armstrong and that is one that i will say if you've never seen it which you probably haven't because you're not me seek it out it's phenomenal it's
0: it's good and i'll just round us out here with another 80s movie that i'm sure everybody has seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off.
1: All right. Well, we hope that was informative for all of you as we start this new podcast, Endeavor, journeying into the center of cinema and talking about all of the different aspects of film and TV.